This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Morena, no mai kiti korero. Welcome to the catch up on Manawatu People's Radio. Tereo Irarangi Onatangata O Manawatu. It is Monday, the 6th of September. Uh, level 3 often requires that little reminder. Uh, and just a, a little update on the numbers from yesterday. Yesterday we had 25 new cases, bringing our uh, total number of active cases up uh, to 22 at the border and 721 in the community. Um, and whilst that is a large number, uh, that 25 new is one of the lowest numbers we've experienced in recent days. So that is pretty good news, we think, from a, an ignorant commentating standpoint. Um, not an ignorant, ignorant commentator, though. We have uh, Jimmy Ellingham from the Manawatu Standard uh, via Zoom this morning. Good morning to you, sir. Yeah, good morning, Fraser. Um, so yes, the, the, the numbers uh, appear to be heading in the right direction, which means we can hope, uh, well, we can hope, uh, for a uh, positive announcement from the Prime Minister today. Yeah, Cabinet is deciding today what to do with the rest of the country, apart from Auckland, uh, as, we, as we know, we've been on level three since last week. Uh, and it appears, doesn't it, there's been no community spread of uh, coronavirus anywhere else outside of Auckland, even in Wellington, it's all been close contacts of, oh. the, of the cases there. Although there was the, the, the apparently a mystery case in mid-central, which was more of an administrative error, I understand. Yes, last Wednesday it was. Um, we've been uh, marooned and very happily marooned on 33 coronavirus cases in the mid-central uh, region since the lockdown in 2020. But last Wednesday, uh, eagle-eyed uh, users of the Ministry of Health website would have noticed a 34th case. Uh, so one new active case appeared on that uh, on that page in the Ministry of Health from the Mid-Central Region, and uh, everyone was going, well, what on earth is this? Because there was no mention of it at the 1pm uh, press conference from Ashley Bloomfield and Jacinda uh, Dern, but it turned out to be an admin error, uh, a person who was a historical case. So they live in the region by the looks of it, but they tested positive overseas and since recovered uh, be it a managed isolation or somewhere else. So that was wrongly included in the mid-central figure and, and, and pretty um, fairly quickly corrected, it has to be said, from the Ministry of Health, although uh, the Ministry of Health has ignored questions about how it happened. Uh, it was promptly uh, corrected on the website. So no no great panic uh, at this stage, but uh, perhaps for an hour or so, there were quite a few people messaging the one or two standard, and, and we saw it ourselves too with our daily check on those figures uh, a lot of people wondering what on earth is going on uh, here, because surely if there was a new case in the community outside of Auckland or Wellington, it would have been mentioned at the press conference. It wasn't. It was just a mistake, but uh, for about an hour or so, it was a, also a mystery. There, one of the things that uh, Manawatu and Mid Central is doing uh, is sort of getting headlines for with regards to COVID nineteen though is the vaccinations. Obviously, Manfield had that first big uh, drive through vaccination centre. Uh, how are we doing compared to the rest of the country in terms of people getting their vaccines? Well, the rest, um, the rest of the country, uh, there's three point three million vaccines nationwide. Apparently, have been uh, have been put in people's arms. In mid-central, there's 125,360. Those figures, uh, when I checked last night, were only available up to the end of Sunday, August 29. 
So that's that's over a week old now, and that was ahead of the target of 118,000. But of course, there's been lots of commentary about those targets about vaccines. Uh, as we said last week, though, one thing we can't tell you is the breakdown of groups on the Ministry of Health vaccine website. There is national breakdowns of you know over 60 group one, group two by ethnicity and all that sort of thing, but it's not happening by individual DHBs. Uh, something to do with the census data. I haven't quite um, got a proper explanation on that, but uh, if, if we're perhaps thinking that the census uh, two or three years ago was a bit of a disaster, so maybe they don't trust those figures mm. to give those percentages, uh, but they can do nationwide because perhaps there's less room for error there. But we do know that uh, more than 125,000 vaccinations have been given in the mid-central region, presumably a lot more since too, could be, as those figures Ah, eight days old now. Yeah, I um, well, I'll help you with your stats, Jimmy, and Skype a little bit. I've had my first one. I had that uh, over the weekend. Uh, weekend? Friday. Friday it was. Um, yes, and absolutely fantastic. Done at um, City Health on Victoria. Uh, very streamlined service there. I, I love going into places and seeing how everyone deals with the physical distancing. It differs from like supermarket to supermarket, store to store. The City Health Pharmacy is carved completely in two. One side just for vaccines, one side for prescriptions. Um, Do you... I think I said this last lockdown as well. I kind of like the limited access things. Supermarkets are never, you know, swamped. It's a nice, calm experience going, getting your groceries. There's a small part of me that goes, could we keep some of this? <laughs> well, one thing I definitely like, I think, is uh, fewer cars on the road and, um, and you know, more people out and about. Of course, fewer cars on the road is unfortunately a sign that shops and businesses aren't open. So that's not a necessarily a good thing but yeah there are bits of it that you sort of think oh this is quite nice it'd be nice if we could uh stick with this when we go back to normal but of course as we know last year we went back to normal and everything was uh, forgotten fairly quickly but uh, speaking of that over the weekend i had a, a chat with michael baker uh, from otago university who, oh stop you- skating stop <laughs> skating you're, yes, gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna tell us you knew him as well once I did work with him once many years ago, yes, Grace. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, him and some fellow academics from the Otago University uh, Public Health Unit and, and those sorts of uh, disciplines are proposing what we need, basically, is if we... The rest of the country, apart from Auckland, in his opinion, and the rest of them can drop down to level two, given there's no apparent community spread of this Delta variant. But what they're proposing for a little while... Um, and perhaps just for the North Island, maybe the South Island could be normal level two, is a level two plus or 2.5, if you were, which has, a, has more restrictions on gatherings and mandates things like masks indoors, except at home, obviously, and mandatory scanning of QR codes. They also um, would like to see similar, similar measures on level two as well. So level two, they said, was fine last year, but it wasn't designed really with the Delta strain in mind. And, and the cabinet may do this. There's nothing to say that that once the ministers meet today, that these sort of restrictions or a new level or a beefed up level two can't be introduced. Uh, of course, the other problem that Michael Baker or issue that Michael Baker uh, points out is that the border at Auckland. How do we manage that? And ideally, he says should have testing for people leaving it, because you'll still have those essential workers going in and out of Auckland. I think it's a couple of thousand a day. Mm. I might have read uh, last week. Uh, But he said if we can get that rapid testing, which we don't have in New Zealand, uh, it's called, I think, antigen testing or something along those lines. But 
I suppose it's stuff like saliva testing, isn't it, that yeah. you can do yourself. And if we can get that introduced, that might help at the border with Auckland. The decision about Auckland and its future will be made next Monday, so it's still a week away for the, uh, for the city of sales. But, yeah, for the rest of the country, we'll hear today. And potentially that beefed-up level two or a new level uh, seems like a, a sensible idea, and I'm sure it's something the Cabinet will consider. Of course, Cabinet hasn't always gone with the view of the experts exactly because they have political and business considerations as well, but uh, it does, does seem quite sensible. I, I was listening to RNZ this morning, and one of the, the, the health uh, professionals, the academics, was talking, and it seems like it would be, if you followed what they prescribed to the letter, it would be very difficult to enforce because they're saying, like, restaurants could open but you'd have to wear face masks and sort of lift your mask up and put the food in your mouth and then put the mask back down again whereas bars and nightclubs are the super spreader areas and that would be they wouldn't be allowed to open so the hospitality the hospitality industry would have some real issues with that i think yes that's the one thing that was proposed is that at this level two plus um you would close uh, nightclubs, I think bars would open, but, you know, in the seated arrangements, but nightclubs, the dance floors is the concern. Uh, gyms was another example they gave, um, and churches was another example, or just as those sorts of gatherings. Mm. So you're right, I don't know how popular that would be. Um, the idea of having masks at restaurants, I think, is when you're seated, you could take them off, and when you're uh, moving around or interacting with someone, that's when you put them on. Uh, so, yeah, you're right, the enforcement could be an issue there. And, I mean, these are all things for Cabinet to consider, aren't they? They've got the views of the experts, they've got the views of business, uh, they've got their their own political considerations and perhaps pressures being applied to them as well. So these will all be things that are presumably taken into account and that we may find out uh, in a matter of hours this afternoon. Indeed, we are here with Jimmy Ellingham from the Manawatu Standard looking at what is making the news in Manawatu. Uh, if you want to listen to this or previous editions of the Catch-Up series, head to the website mpr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. Uh, let's leave COVID to one side for a little bit, Jimmy, and have a look at some other things. Uh, works in the Esplanade have been continuing, I understand. Yeah, a couple of things on that. First is the mini golf course, which uh, I've spoken about because I'm personally excited about it, uh, to be <laughs> built near the playground and hockey turfs area by the Middle District's Lions Club. It's going to cost about $330,000 for them to do that. Uh, it's going to be a, it's a fundraiser, basically, so all the money that will be made there uh, will go to community projects that the Lions uh, are involved in. But the City Council's given the Lions Club a sort of exemptions changed the standardised lease it would give for businesses, not that the club's a business, but for operators who want to operate in its public parks. Traditionally, you have five years and a five-year right of renewal, but uh, the Lions Club said, well, we need a bit more certainty than that, given all the fundraising and sponsorship we'll be getting for this mini-golf venture. So the City Council voted last week to give the club 10 years of a 10-year right of renewal. The reason it had... um, that five years plus five, I think it's just so the council could retain a bit of control. But there's also a clause that remains in the lease contract that says, basically, if the business isn't up to scratch, the council can come in and, and take it over or do do what it wants. So it still does have that mechanism there. I mean, as Grant Smith, the mayor said, uh, it's unlikely the Lions Club is going to go rogue um, anyway. So <laughs> really, uh, I mean, fairly good reputation and deservedly so. Vaughan uh, Dennison was the only councillor to vote against this uh, he just thought there's been some vagueness about charging and, and that sort of thing at, at this point, and he wanted the council to keep the power to have that 
uh, right of refusal, I suppose, after five years. But uh, no, the City Council went ahead, and 10 years uh, it will be. So we'll have mini golf there for at least 20 years, potentially. Splendid. Uh, yeah, that makes, yes. you, makes you a very happy boy, I'm sure. Uh, indeed, it does. And <laughs> also, at Esplanade, uh, we've got a new pathway between the river and uh, the car park, which uh, it does look very nice. It's, it's got lighting, it's got uh, train tracks, rail, what, what do you call them, bits of metal, I suppose, and in, in the ground is tracks, isn't it? Mm. Uh, to give that railway figure because it passes past the mini uh, railway. But this is interesting in the fact that the path took almost a year or probably about 10 months from the work starting to open, um, and that's because it's a victim of the contractor shortage. There was, it was supposed to, The work was supposed to be done by late summer, but uh, when the contractors were doing a lot of the work over summer, there was a period of rain before Christmas, six weeks of rain, put them behind schedule, and they missed their windows. So the city council had to uh, had to wait. And, uh, so that highlights perhaps a, problem, a wider problem than simply just for this uh, pathway. Uh, the project was also about $50,000 over budget. It came in about 400000 It was supposed to be 350000 And this is also symptom of a wider problem. The council says the cost of materials rose significantly uh, in the last in the last year or so, which of course, as we know, is a, a wider problem than just Palmerston North or just one pathway. So um, I thought that was interesting as it highlighted um, the challenges really that probably many people are facing getting tradespeople, contractors, workers, oh, yes. and the cost of materials rising. So uh, the council's not immune from that. And uh, also people who would have noticed, obviously, the park road uh, Cook Street Esplanade intersection. The traffic lights there have been working now for quite a few weeks. There's a little bit of work to go there, just some landscaping, uh, that sort of thing. But the the actual traffic lights have been going, and uh, I think are probably a vast improvement on the old intersection there, which was a bit of a rat run, particularly in uh, peak times. Oh, definitely. And it seems the Esplanade's had quite a bit of a, a facelift. If we've got the, the 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 new pathway, the the new intersection, the the new mini golf, uh, are they going to leave the Esplanade, Esplanade alone for a while now, or are there more developments happening? Well, there are plans to do something with the bird aviary, which is uh, probably looking a bit sad at the moment. And also, uh, speaking of that, the uh, the old cockatiel who who was there for many years, died last week. Um, Cocky, the, 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 the innovatively Cocky, named right, yeah. Cocky. Yes, it's like calling a cat ginger or something, isn't it? But yes, Cocky, Cocky died uh, last week, uh, 50, 50 something years old, I think, 51, which is uh, a ripe old age. Uh, but there are plans too. There's, there's potentially in the future for enhanced um, gardens there. There's the, bon- there's the City Council bonsai collection, which if you recall, we... Uh, talked about last year, I think, and the cost of housing that are quite significant. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so there are plans like that. I mean, the Esplanade is something that's always changing a little bit, isn't it? There's always improvements uh, there. As long as the feel of it probably doesn't get tinkered with, I think most people will be happy. But it looks really good. You've got the Hiara Kotahi Bridge, all those walkways, and they're very popular on uh, on days like today, I think, when the weather's nice and we're all at home. Uh, so it's really good to see down there all the developments that are happening. 
Indeed. Uh, let's move on, Jimmy. Um, the Palmerston North City Council has uh, been wearing this wastewater challenge for probably decades now, uh, going back to when her- they fell out with Horizons and then everything got more constructive and then they had to make changes. Obviously, now we've got the government's three waters reform proposals just making things a little bit more complicated as well. Um, but right now, um, we're getting a sort of a justification for looking at this issue closely because the river pollution levels aren't fantastic. Yeah, last week we said the City Council's preferred wastewater treatment option uh, for its uh, well-named Nature Calls project is the $495 million option of having most of the wastewater continue to go into the river but treat it better, um, but during periods of low flow having it go to land. And that, as you say, was borne out perhaps over summer. There were a few, uh, it was a handful of days really, in um, January, March, and <coughs> excuse me, into early April, the low flow season where ammonia levels in the river from the wastewater were too high. And that's really because there's not enough river water to dilute it. And uh, ammonia, of course, can have a harmful effect on uh, fish life and other uh, life in the river. So, yes, I mean, that's one thing that probably uh, highlights why we need to have a think about how our wastewater or how Palmerston's wastewater is disposed of. Um, Horizon said they're treating this as moderate non-compliance but uh, Mike Joy, the ecologist uh, formerly of Massey University, now Victoria University, um, is a bit frustrated by this. And he said that all the rules are biased towards uh, polluters. And, you know, I guess something needs to be done. But it looks like something is being done because this week the City Council will, I think, vote on its you know, vote formally to decide this Nature Calls project, which option it likes. But then it's the waiting game, isn't it? As you see, it's the, it's the three waters waiting game. Will it be the city council in charge? Will it be a new body? Oh, who knows mm. at, at, at this point? The, um, that yeah. option to put it onto land, I remember talking to councillors at length when the original sort of consultation was out and people could see what the options were or, or give their own ideas. Putting uh, the, the wastewater to land, even only uh, at certain times of the year, requires a huge area, doesn't it? Yeah, as we discussed last week, the current uh, proposal would have 760 hectares of land. And to try to put that in some kind of context, uh, that new Kiwi Rail uh, rail yards, which we talk about, the massive size of that is 177 hectares, so about a quarter uh, of what's required. And it's quite possible that if different options are explored for the wastewater, up to 2,000 hectares could be uh, could be needed, which, which is simply huge. I mean, Thinking, to try and put that in a further context, there's a, a massive property that we're writing about at the moment that's sold Napier Roadway. You might be familiar with it. It's a farm, basically, which is going to have a, a retirement village put on some of it. That's only 30 hectares, and it's a huge, huge block of land on the edge of the, of the city. So it's not even 10%, it's not even 5% of the 760 hectares. So do the city council own that type, of, that amount of land anywhere? No, is the short answer. And there's some uncertainty, of course, about where this will go. It would have to be downstream from Palmerston North somewhere, so somewhere between here and the coast, uh, outside the city boundary, because I don't think you're going to find 760 hectares of free land in the city without uh, displacing an entire suburb or two. So, and we spoke to uh, Peter Wells, a farmer downstream of the wastewater plant. He's part of Federated Farmers. And he talked about the uncertainty that this is creating. 
you know, farmers are saying, well, do we carry on with our development plans, our lease options? Um, what's going to happen? And, and that sounds a, a fair enough point too, but particularly when we don't actually know how much land is required. And, and we've seen down the past year or two, in the likes of there's been public meetings, hasn't there, in Honolulu from them saying that they don't want our wastewater yeah, well. on their land. <laughs> Which isn't surprising. I mean, Mike Joy points out that sometimes wastewater being charged to land, there is nutrient, there are nutrients in it which can, in fact, be positive to grow plants and vegetation and that sort of thing. But I don't think you can, you can't necessarily do all types of farming on that land. There's things you can and can't do. So, I mean, that, that we need to be clear about that. And I'm sure we'll get more detail from the City Council soon. So, um, I mean, that's all part of the decisions that. Uh, both councillors and officials have to make very shortly. Indeed, we'll watch that one with interest as well. Uh, you wanted to touch on Casia Birch. Uh, if people remember, Casia Birch was run by a trust. It seemed to be run fairly well by the trust and uh, well maintained, but the city council uh, thought they could do it uh, cheaper uh, if they yes. managed it in house. Yeah, they, they identified some cost savings, as it were. It was only a few thousand dollars really wasn't it wasn't huge for, for, from memory but the, that process is ongoing and next year the trust will hand over control of the venue to the city council uh, and it will be part of the, i suppose the venues the internal uh the internal way of things are managed at the city council and a couple of trustees of course left recently which could have uh, put the trustee in breach of its uh, own rules but uh, grant smith and councillor renee dingwell have been appointed uh, to make up the numbers to, to smooth that over. Um, there's also a third party that's been brought in to set up the, I suppose you call it a transitional arrangement. Uh, but I didn't wonder about the cost of that. And, of course, would that potentially offset any savings anyway? Uh, we'll, we'll have to see. We'll have to see how that goes. But everything's on track, apparently, for the, for the handover next year. And the, the trust will have its last annual meeting in November, which is delayed slightly. But uh, after that... Yeah, it'll hang more and more things over. Uh, the council says, for the as far as the Casey Birch, the venue is concerned, for people hiring it and using it, it's just business as usual. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's no reason to think that won't be the case. But uh, yes, yeah, certainly the trust has been very unhappy mm. um, about the way things have been handled. The, the council got ownership of Casey Birch. I think it was just over 30 years ago, wasn't it? After the government didn't need it anymore, and. Uh, I mean, I don't think anyone can deny that the trust has done a good job of running it. It's a, it's a pretty, pretty nice uh, venue that people seem to appreciate. It just seems to be the way of it with uh, the city council at the moment. Things must be done in house. Um, well, not and- just the city council. It's uh, centralisation uh, is, is, is the way at the moment, isn't it? And I'm sure in five or ten years' time, we'll have a new way of thinking, and everything will be. Decentralised. Anyone who's been in any sector long enough knows that the trends come and go and the old ideas come back and it all gets turned around. That's what keeps us busy. If we didn't change things all the time, we'd all be bored. Uh, Jimmy, we've got about four minutes left. Let's have a quick look at uh, security concerns at the Regent. This was very strange. <laughs> yes, so last week, last week, the band, the Pink Floyd Experience, which played at the Regent Theatre, in late May, May 28th, uh, put a post on its Facebook page with some pictures and video of its dressing room toilet showing quite quite significant damage. And it said that it was caused uh, either during or after its show on May 28th by what the band said was a bomb. Uh, the Manawatu said understands it's more likely some sort of aerosol can or something that's set on fire, but the same effect, really, isn't it? It's uh, um, oh, yes. caused quite 
a lot of damage. Yeah. And, and there was no, the band was saying, well, we, we're doing this because the, the police haven't given us an update and there's been no publicity from the police. Um, funny enough, as soon as Pink Floyd, well, the Pink Floyd experience, not, not the <laughs> not Pink Floyd. The plot uh, thickens. Yes, I posted it to its Facebook page and uh, we did a story shortly afterwards because like the road case of coronavirus, um, our readers very quickly alerted us to this uh, to this going on uh, at, at, um, at the Regents and uh, then the police put out a press release sort of bizarrely appealing for information for something that happened three just over three months ago. But as a result, the Regent has beefed up its security. There will be uh, security at, around the stage area so people can't just uh, wander in and around that willy-nilly uh, anymore. And also for, for events where there's sort of parents and schools involved, of which there's many there, isn't there? There's prize givings, there's choir sort of performances. There'll be uh, security staff around that back door to the Regent on, on King Street. Uh, but, you know, all, all very bizarre. Uh, no one has been arrested. The police investigations of this is still ongoing. And yeah, very a quite be a very strange feeling if you're the Pink Floyd experience to, to wonder who would get in here, who would do this, and, and, and why. Um, I'm quite lucky no one was hurt. I'm assuming the Regent have uh, CCTV along sort of the back corridors and things that you know that would help because my, uh, the other thing is you know with all this additional security required, this is going to make the cost of hiring the venue go up, isn't it? Yeah, potentially, you, you would think that could be the case. Um, CCTV, we don't know. Um, the police and the city council and the regent say they can't comment while the investigation is uh, ongoing. But, of course, if it gets to the stage soon where that investigation gets quietly uh, shelved, then those sort of questions that we will be asking about CCTV. We know that CCTV isn't infallible, though. I mean, stories that we've talked, I've talked to you about, Fraser, about the Parsonal Hospital Mental Health Ward, CCTV around there, didn't cover absolutely everything. So you, you mm. might have cameras, but are they everywhere? And do they show enough detail anyway? There we go. Jimmy Ellingham from the Man We're Two Standard. Thank you for joining us on the catch-up this morning. Yeah, thank you, Fraser. And remember, if you want to listen to this or previous editions of the catch-up series, just head to the website to mpr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. Uh, keep your ears peeled for the Prime Minister's announcements later today. Hopefully we'll see a return to level two. Cross your fingers. We'll be back tomorrow at half past eight for another edition of the catch-up. Do join us then. Bye for now. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the KiwiFruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.